Uh, today we're going to look at Mark uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Um, we're going to continue on our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at these few verses in uh, the bigger context of the verses both right before and right after it. And we're also going to look at it in the context of the Bible at large. Um, try to see if we can understand um, what Jesus is saying here within the whole scope of Scripture. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to go to a couple of other Scriptures with me other than just Mark chapter 7 this morning. Uh, I'm going to be going to several different ones, but there's two specific ones that I want you to find and, and mark them for a little bit later. Those are Ephesians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 10, so you can just put your thumb there. Before we get going, um, I'm going to pray for us. We know that the things in Scripture are only discerned through the Spirit of God, so we're going to ask Him to give us understanding. Father God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. Uh, we thank You that You have seen fit to reveal Yourself to us through it um, and also through Your Son, Jesus. Um, we thank you that you give us your spirit so that we can understand it rightly, and we pray that you would do that now, uh, that nothing I say would be untrue, um, but that your word would be spoken and it would be clear, and we pray that you would give us understanding on it, Lord God. And it's in your son Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen. All right, uh, so we're going to start in verse 14. Of Mark chapter 7, it says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. In the beginning of this chapter, we see the Pharisees travel to Jesus. Um, they're going to gather to him from Jerusalem, and they're going to do that for the purpose of accusing him. They're, they're trying to catch him in what they consider to be sin. They're going to gather to accuse him. Uh, Colby has talked about how the Pharisees have control of what the traditions look like, the way that people act and walk. The question they ask him in verse 5 is, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So this is about the way that people Walk. They want to control the way that you walk with God and are um, represented there. So backing up further than that in the Gospel of Mark, in chapters 4 through 6, we've seen Jesus do a few different things. Just a quick synopsis. He has calmed the storm with a single command, a single word, cast legion, many demons out of a man, He's healed many people, some of them just by touching the edges of his garments. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's proved time and again his authority over nature, over the demonic, over the sickness in your body, over death with the daughter of Jairus. He's proven his divinity and his authority. And the Pharisees come to him and ask, why do your disciples not walk the way we say they should? Why do they not do what we say? So they have an issue with Jesus' authority that he is establishing, that he is proving. And we need to see their heart 
because Jesus is about to say something else that the way we respond to it and the way we respond to anything that Jesus says is going to show you whether you have the heart of a Pharisee or the heart of a disciple of Jesus. So we need to see the difference between the two. So in in verse 14, after Jesus in the previous section has exposed their heart, he's exposed their position, he tells them in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God to hold on to your tradition and you reject the commandment of God in verse 9 to establish your tradition. He exposes that in them. After doing this, in verse 14, Jesus turns from them and calls people, sinners, to himself to teach them and to give them understanding. Notice the difference between the heart of a Pharisee and the heart of Jesus. They gather to the authority to challenge it and to catch him and accuse him. He calls sinners to himself to teach and give them understanding. Now Jesus has authority. He's established that. But Jesus establishes that in other places in scripture too. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells another Jewish audience, he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew what that statement meant. They knew that that meant Jesus was saying he was God. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was at creation and that without him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, so Jesus is the authority on all things, including what he's about to address, food. Okay, not only food, but the heart as well. So in the previous verses, he addresses the traditions of the elders. Colby talked about how this is a non-binding set of oral laws that's passed down from one set of Pharisees to the next. And that helps them to maintain their authority and maintain control over the people in the way that they walk. These are things that they have added to the commandments of God, the tradition of the elders. But now, here in these verses, when he turns from them to the people, he's actually going to address the commandments of God. Okay? He's going to turn from the tradition and focus on the law. Let's see what he says. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, some manuscripts add uh, verse 16 right here, which says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I don't know why that's taken out of some manuscripts, but I think that's also important for us to note because Jesus has things to say And the way in which you react is going to show you whether or not you have ears to hear. Do you have the heart of the Pharisee that rejects Jesus' teaching? Or do you have the heart of a disciple who's not going to understand what he says and ask him the authority for clarification on the subject? Do you have ears to hear? What do the disciples do? Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. I don't understand. Please teach me. Is this your heart when you approach Jesus? Or do you think you've already got it figured out? And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So in the previous verses, when the Pharisees come to him and they accuse him through his disciples about the tradition of the elders and the way in which they walk, they're not addressing food. They're addressing the hands with which the disciples eat. They're not washed. They're ceremonially defiled the way we say that they should do it, right? They're misapplying the law. They're taking something that was meant for um, the priests and they're applying it to all the people, right? It's not about the food for the Pharisees. And Jesus has dealt with that. He's dealt with their heart. But here in this statement, Jesus is actually addressing not the hands with which his disciples eat, but the food that they eat. Nothing from outside you by going into you can defile you. And in verse 18, he's going to repeat it. He says, do you not have understanding? Whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him. Okay? So these two words, nothing, whatever, this is all-inclusive language. Okay? There's no food that from the outside, by going into you, can defile you. Okay? So earlier he addressed the tradition, but here he addresses the law, the commands of God. Um, I stole this next part from a preacher uh, named Vodi Bakum. If you don't know who he is, I would um, highly recommend him uh, to you. I find him to be very biblically sound. And he says this about Jesus. He says, now, it's important to remember that Jesus is not an anti, sorry, microphone's up here. Jesus is not an anti-nomian. Nomos meaning law, anti meaning against. Jesus is not against the law. He is not lawless. Jesus is not saying in this that the law is bad and has no place. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually takes the law and he raises it a notch. All right, Matthew chapter 5 Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Just because you haven't shed someone's blood doesn't make you not a murderer. Jesus goes on, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, intent, heart, Right? With lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus comes and he says that the law requires far more of you than you think it does. You are using the outside to cover up the fact that you are ruined on the inside. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. This is why he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. You are defiled. They are concerned about the outside, not the inside. So Jesus is not an antinomian. He's not against the law. He is the authority on the law. So this is where it gets confusing for this audience that he's speaking to. It seems to you and me like this is pretty cut and dry, right? This is pretty clear. Um, you 
and I were never Israelites before we met Jesus, okay? You and I were what the Bible is going to call pagans, all right? We're Gentile sinners before we met Jesus, okay? I've been eating mostly however I wanted to pretty much my entire life. So this statement, nothing by going into you can defile you, isn't terribly difficult for me, and it's not terribly difficult for you. We don't have the historical context that this group of people has with this statement. He says it, he says this to a people that can actually take him not to the Talmud, which Colby talked about, not to the traditions of the elders, but to chapter and verse that is going to seemingly contradict what Jesus is saying here. Leviticus chapter 11, verses, um, well, the whole chapter is going to give laws on food, okay? It's going to be God telling the Israelites what you may put in your mouth and eat and what you may not, and he's going to give them some reasons for that. Uh, 43 through 45, at the end of that chapter, God says, you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Defile. Twice he says that. You shall not defile yourself in this way. And Jesus is going to come and say that nothing by going into you can defile you. What do we do with this? For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy for I am holy. So Jesus says this to an audience that has this historical context for the statement that he's saying. And I believe there are two purposes for the law, the law in chapter um, 11 of Leviticus. So this could be a sermon series on its own, and we're not going to take a huge deep dive into this. Um, but... The Bible speaks to the fact that not all law is created equal. Not all law having the same weight. You can go to Psalms 51. David talks about it. About it. Um, Micah talks about it. Um, other prophets talk about it. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, talks to the fact that different um, parts or aspects of the law carry more weight than others. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 23, again, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe and mint and dill, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus is going to speak to the aspect that not all parts of the law carry the same weight. Okay? So, there's this concept that scripture speaks to about the law having different aspects, all right? So, there's moral law. A moral law from God is binding on all people in all places at all times. It was wrong for Cain to murder his brother Abel before the law was given, and it's wrong for you to hate your brother in your heart or shed his blood Today, even though you're not an Israelite, and even though Jesus has taken that to the cross, that's still binding on you, okay? The food laws are not moral laws, all right? 
Neither are they civil laws. Civil laws are those that God gave to Israel to govern them as a theocratic nation. For example, they tell, they tell Israel legally or judicially how to address a man if his ox gores another man the first time. How do you address that man? And how do you address the same man after his ox has gored a man a second time and he didn't do anything about it the first time? Okay? These are civil laws. They deal with what you do legally and judicially. And we don't carry those laws over to our nation. But as Christians, we live under the principles of those laws. Okay? Romans chapter 7 says that we don't live by the letter of the law any longer. We live by the spirit of it. All right? So we are under the principles as Christians, but not the letter of it. The food laws are not moral. They're not civil. They are ceremonial. All right? So ceremonial laws govern Israel's worship of God. Ceremonial laws deal with how a people approaches a holy God in worship. And the defilement that these laws in Leviticus chapter 11 speak to have to do with whether the one who is defiled can approach God. A defiled person in the Old Covenant cannot approach God. Okay? And food was not the only way you could become defiled or unclean. You could, for example, touch a dead body. You could be on your period. You could have had sex. You could have done a number of different things. You could have contracted leprosy. You could do things that are inside your control and things that are outside your control, and they're going to make you unclean such that you cannot approach God to worship him. The thing that's important is that the uncleanness that came from these things that prevented you from going to the tabernacle to worship God were not permanent uncleanness. They were not permanent defilement. Okay? They are a picture meant to point us to true defilement of heart, which is permanent and which eternally separates you from a holy God. For some of these things, you would have to offer sacrifices. Some of them you would have to do washings. Some you would just have to let time pass by before you were clean again and undefiled. But it was never permanent. Jesus is going to come and say, you are permanently, eternally defiled from within. And that defilement that eternally separates you from a holy God Jesus takes to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, this is the same reason why there are other laws in Leviticus that we don't do anymore. For example, the sacrifices. Okay? Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. It's true that there's no temple today, and you'll find people who will tell you that as soon as the temple is rebuilt, we'll return to the sacrifices. But Hebrews 10 is going to be clear on this subject. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 says, I'll give you a second to get there. Hebrews chapter 10. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So the defilement that comes from the food laws, the sacrifices, there are reminders. There are pictures in these things that point us to our true defilement, to our need for a sacrifice, our need for a savior. Skip down to verse 12 of Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For us to return to the Levitical sacrifices for the covering of our sin would be to blaspheme the sacrifice of Christ. In those sacrifices was a reminder of sin. Much in the same way, in these food laws, there is a temporary defilement that is a reminder of our heart's defilement that is our need for a Savior. So this is the first reason for the Leviticus 11 food laws. Okay, It's a picture of your defilement that Jesus is going to address in Mark chapter 7. But before we get there, there's a second reason for these laws. It's people. Okay, so God tells the Israelites in Leviticus not to defile themselves. Why? Well, he actually says it in that verse I just read to you. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. This law in Leviticus 11 is partly a picture to show defilement, but it is also serving the purpose of creating a distinction between those that are God's people and those that are not. My people do this, those that are not, my people do this. Okay? God, humans are moving through time, and God calls out a people from among the nations to be a holy, set-apart people to the Lord, to be their God. Jesus has established he is God. He is at creation. And so he is with the Father in Leviticus chapter 11, handing down these instructions on what this people in this time may eat and may not eat and what will defile them. And it's part of calling them out of the nations to be their God, to create distinctions between people. Now, this is not the first time that God and Jesus um, has changed the instructions in respect to food. Okay? Genesis chapter 1 says this in verses 28 and 29. It says, after God has created Adam and Eve, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So in the garden, it's just plants. Okay? God gives dominion over the animals, but only permission to eat plants. All right? Genesis chapter 9. 
The flood has just happened. Noah and his family step off the boat. Notice the similar language here in Genesis 9 to Genesis 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. Okay? Except to Adam and Eve, he continued to say, and subdue it. Okay? There was to be a harmonious ruling from man to animals. Here in Genesis chapter 9, our sin changes the nature of everything in God's creation. Verse 2 of 9 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So the command goes from subdue it, have dominion over it, rule over it, to the fear and the dread of you is on everything. Okay, so our sin impacts every aspect of God's creation, including what we eat. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So we see God change the instructions in the food. All right? Now, it's important to note that the distinction between clean and unclean animals here in Genesis chapter 9 already exists. If you back up two chapters to Genesis chapter 7, God's telling Noah to get on the boat, and he tells him to take how many animals on the boat? How many? Two of every kind of unclean animal. Seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. Okay? So when God comes down in Genesis chapter 9 and says, everything that moves shall be food for you, there's already a distinction between clean and unclean animals with no mention of defilement. God just gives permission. Okay? So God has authority to say what's on the menu and what it's going to do to you. All right? The important thing we need to get from this progression, from plants to every moving thing that lives, to every living thing that moves, to Leviticus chapter 11, eat this, not that, now to Mark chapter 7, nothing going into you can defile you, is that God has authority to change the instructions according to his purposes and on his timeline. And in Leviticus... The second reason for the food laws, other than the picture of defilement, is to create this distinction between people groups. God says that, for I am the Lord your God. Okay? That's important. Now, if we misapply his laws today from Leviticus chapter 11 at the unappointed time to say that those things will still defile you because we think that makes us better than other people or because we think it makes us closer to God or makes us more righteous in his sight. That's a misapplication of these laws. All right? And that's the heart of the Pharisee. 
Having said that, does that mean there's no benefit in observing the food laws? No. We know things about the animals on that Leviticus chapter 11 list, like most of them are God's design for the filtration system of the earth. Okay? They eat dead things. They eat other things that stink. Um, I have a grandpa, had a grandpa, who was a farmer and not a rancher, but dealt enough with animals um, well enough to tell me this. And Joel, if this is wrong, you can correct me on it. But uh, he told me one day that the most efficient way to feed five pigs is not to feed them all in the same space because then the dominant pig wins and you get one pig that grows larger than the others. If you want to make sure that all five pigs are going to eat, line them up in a chute, nose to butt, and feed the front one. After enough time, all five pigs will eat. Okay? So maybe everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Okay? <laughs> Having said that, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 11 and start observing these laws because you think it makes you clean or righteous before a holy God, that's a misapplication of that. If you want to be free to not eat those things, fine. If you want to be free to eat them, good. All right? What we can't allow differences in diet to do is get between us as brothers and sisters. God put it there to create distinction between Israel and Gentiles. Okay? If we let anything regarding our diet today get in the way of our brotherly affection for one another and our relationship, that's the heart of putting something on the outside as more important than what's on the inside. Your love for your brother. That's pride. Something that comes from the heart. Okay, so Mark chapter 7. Nothing that goes into you can defile you. Jesus says it's what's already inside you and comes out. This is about people. Uh, Acts chapter 10. Peter's going to get a vision uh, while he's sleeping on the rooftop of unclean animals falling on a sheep. Right? Everybody knows this story because it's another thing where we say, yeah, now we can eat bacon. All right? True, but there's something more going on here too. All right? And it's good news for us Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision and he hears the voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what is Peter's response? By no means, Lord. Why not? For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now just pause with me here for a second. Who authored Mark? John Mark, from the account of Peter. Okay? It's been a minute from Mark chapter 7 to Acts chapter 10. Jesus says, nothing that going into you can defile you. Peter I've never eaten anything unclean, okay? So understanding on this is going to take a minute, and grace needs to be given in that, okay? Because you and I are Gentiles and don't have the history and the context, we're like, yeah, let's go celebrate with our bacon-wrapped shrimp. It's going to take some people a minute, okay? And that's true with other things in your walk, right? How many times has God told you something 
and it doesn't compute. And God has to tell you again and again and again, and he's patient with you and kind, patient so that you will repent. All right? I love Peter for that reason. I also love this story because in verse 17, it says that Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. And if you skip down a few verses, he's going to show us what the vision means. In verse 28, after he gets up, goes with the men to Cornelius' house, a God-fearing Gentile, he's going to say to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I don't actually know if that's God's law or if that's man's law, but there's something on Peter where he's not supposed to even hang out with these people, and everybody knows it. Okay? But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God, through this command in a vision to eat unclean meats, commanding Peter to eat unclean meats or to just eat what's on the sheet, because Jesus said in Mark 7 that it's not unclean, okay, it can't defile you, right? Peter calls it unclean. But through this vision, he's telling Peter that this is Gentile inclusion. The Leviticus chapter 11 laws are meant to point to your true defilement, and they were meant to pull Israel out from among the nations as a holy people to God, and now God is including you, making one man out of the two. He's saying this distinction is not the distinction between who is my people and who is not. Jesus is going to say in Mark chapter 7 that that distinction is inside of you from the heart. Do not call any person common or unclean. This is not only about food, but it is also, and much more importantly, about people. So God is dealing with our eternal defilement by sending Jesus to the cross to be an eternal sacrifice. And he's telling us that this dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is over. This distinction between the two peoples. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. going to start in verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that is everyone here, I think, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is Paul's description of you without Christ. You're strangers to the covenant of promise, you have no hope, and you are without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, made us both one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. He pulls them out, creates distinction, and that distinction is not anymore. One new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Back to Mark chapter 7. I don't think it's an accident that the very next story or account in Mark chapter 7 is that of the Syrophoenician woman. Because she is a Gentile. Jesus is going to refer to her as a dog. In verse 27, And he, Jesus, said to her, this woman who has come to him and asked for him to cast a demon out of her daughter, says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This was a common term for Gentiles. Okay? And Jesus is not going to see that she obeys the food laws and casts this demon out of her daughter. She, he is going to see her faith. Faith in him as Messiah and cast the demon out of her daughter. The same faith that saves Peter is the same faith that saved Abraham is the same faith by which Jesus is going to cast the demon out of this woman's daughter is the same faith that saves you. Faith in Jesus and his blood on the cross. Not adherence to ceremonial cleanliness. Jesus is and has always been after your heart. And now in Mark chapter 7, he's going to say some things about our hearts. So let's look at what Jesus has to say there. Verse 20 says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come Find yourself on this list somewhere, because you're there, I promise you. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Jesus says that you can't get more defiled spiritually than you already are. This word evil simply means not as it ought to be. Your heart is not as it ought to be. It is against the very nature of who God is your heart and you are not confused apart from Christ you're not just ignorant apart from Christ you are evil apart from Christ we live in a world that tells us to follow your heart and we watch movies and listen to Disney princesses and celebrities that will tell you the same thing and not only follow your heart but it's right to follow your heart and if you do the universe will take care of you But Jesus is going to agree with the prophet Jeremiah who says that the heart is wicked 
and desperately sick and cannot be understood. So let's look at this list. Again, Jesus is not an antinomian. All right? He's not against the law. But these things are the moral law. All right? These are things that are binding on all people in all places at all times. Evil thoughts. This is more than just a thought that crosses your mind that's bad. All right? Again, evil, not as it ought to be, against the nature of God, and an inward reasoning such that you entertain thoughts contrary to God's nature. This is not a thought you take captive and turn over to God. This is inward reasoning such that you put your logic above the logic of God. Sexual immorality. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one than some of the other ones. Because I think it's extremely relevant in our culture today. You realize that in our culture today, like, forget Leviticus chapter 11. We have all sorts of ways to become a legalist and separate ourselves from other people by the food that we eat. You can be gluten-free. You can be dairy-free. Okay, let me pause. Some of these things are actual allergies for some people, okay? But we have campers who come to camp who come from rich homes. Every once in a while that will happen at camp, and they have all the allergies in the book because their parents told them they did, okay? Not because they have the allergy, all right? The poor kids don't have any allergies. The rich kids do, okay? So you can be gluten-free. You can be dairy-free. You can eat kosher, which, by the way, is not biblical, all right? Kosher means you can't eat a cheeseburger because it's an outworking of the law where you don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, all right? That's a misapplication of that law, all right? You can be intermittent fasting. You can have the South Beach diet. You can have whatever you want in regards to food and separate yourselves from other people in that way. But our culture is going to come at sex and it's going to say, do whatever you want. There are no rules and feel no shame. Jesus comes and says, sexual immorality defiles you from the heart. This word in the Greek, sexual immorality, is porneia. It's where we get pornography. People want to tell you today that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. If someone says that to you, Mark chapter 7. This verse is anything, any sexual activity outside the confines of God's boundaries of marriage being one man and one woman. It includes things like bestiality. It includes things like living with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you are married. Okay? You got to try the shoe on for a while, make sure it fits. Jesus says that comes from the heart and defiles you. Okay? And it includes homosexuality. All right? Outside the confines of one man, one woman. God's definition of marriage, okay? Jesus has some things to say about our sexuality. Um, I think it's important that as the church, we know this, what this term includes, and we include everything that's in it because there's a pressure for us to include homosexuality in the church, okay? This term also includes pedophilia, and that's next on the list of things that the world's going to say is okay. It's called age fluidity. 
all right? So it's important for us to understand this term. It's evil from the heart. Theft, murder, which Jesus already said is a heart issue. Just because you have not shed your brother's blood does not mean you're not a murderer. Adultery, which Jesus already said is a heart issue. Just because you haven't physically gone through with the act of sleeping with someone else's wife doesn't mean you don't have a lustful intent in your heart to do so. And therefore, you're an adulterer. See, there's a way in which I can not eat bacon-wrapped shrimp and think that I'm okay because I obey letters, but I want to sleep with someone else's wife and still think that I'm okay because I obey letters and not the spirit of the law. Jesus says no. Covetousness, this is insatiable greed. What you have is never enough, more, always more. Wickedness, this is malice of forethought, evil intent and desire towards other people. Deceit, this is more than just telling a lie. It's setting a snare for someone else to catch them the heart of the Pharisees, or to bait them into something, deceiving them. Sensuality. This is unbridled lust for the pleasure of the senses. Any of them. Envy. This is an evil eye towards your brother, an eye that is not as it should be towards your brother and what he has. Pride. This is treating other people, other image bearers of God, with insolence or contempt because of your swollen estimation of your own merits and accomplishments. I eat right, so I'm better than you. I do that thing you don't do, so I'm better than you. I know more Bible than you do, so I'm better than you. You see how religion can be defiling to you? Jesus is going to say that these are the things that defile a person, not what goes in your mouth. And so I think too often we leave this passage thinking that the point of the passage is that we can eat whatever we want, okay? And Jesus says that. Nothing that goes into you can defile you, okay? But he does not stop there, all right? Jesus is after your heart. There's two ways you can wrongly leave this passage, and I know because I have in my experience done both of these things after I've read this passage. Number one, if you leave this passage thinking that the ultimate expression of the freedom that you have in Christ is to put whatever you want to in your mouth and not that the ultimate freedom of expression or the ultimate expression of freedom in Christ is through the righteousness of Christ that frees you from these evil things in your heart, then you have missed the heart of the matter. Likewise, If you leave this passage and you twist it to say something that it doesn't say, and I've done this, and I've seen it done through some trickery, 
that Jesus is not actually talking about food and that the ultimate form of worship you can offer to God is to restrict what you put in your mouth and that the ultimate form of worship to God is not a life lived out of a changed heart that he's made free, then you have missed the heart of the matter. Okay? Don't turn this into a a situation where you want to eat a certain way and that makes you self-righteous over other people. Don't turn this into a situation where your ultimate expression of freedom in Christ is to eat whatever you want. Jesus is after your heart. And he includes Gentile sinners like us in his kingdom. Praise God. So what do we do? Cling to Jesus and his righteousness because he took your sin, your defilement to the cross so that you might become the righteousness of God. And that's the only righteousness that counts anything for you. Cling to Jesus and his righteousness because he took your heart's defilement to the cross and he came to include you in his kingdom. I want to pray for you. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to carry my sin to the cross, my defilement to the cross, defeat it, rise from the dead, ascend to your right hand, and thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to live inside of me such that I can worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to cling to you and your righteousness and not our own. And God, I pray that you would change each one of us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And that we would love one another as you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't know what's next. Lee? Thank you, Jacob. That was great. Um, Jacob presented the gospel. It's pretty simple, right? We're defiled. We are, uh, we're broken. We're sinful by nature. That's who we are. And by Jesus' grace, he came and rescued us from that. He died on the cross, took our sin, and, and uh, bore it. He, uh, he was beaten for it, and he's hung on a tree for it, uh, just as Jacob said. And we're in this time of communion that we come to, we take the, we take the, the sacraments, right? We take, we're taking the, the blood of Christ, which is just grape juice, nothing special. And we're eating crackers, and we're remembering how his body was broken for us and how his blood was spilled for us. And we're looking forward to that time when we get to be in Jesus' presence again. 
with uh, sitting at the same table with our Creator. And, and it just struck me this morning as I was thinking of this, of the image of our Creator. Um, and this is in Revelations, John's description of Jesus. Um, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice in the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword in his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me. Praise God for that, right? His hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of Hades and death. That's our creator. And that's who we're remembering. That's who we're celebrating. And that's who we're looking forward to when we take these uh, and take these um, elements here. So let's, uh, let's pray. We're going to come up together, um, and then we'll take, go back to your seats, and we'll take communion together as a body, uh, remembering what Christ did for us. Father, you're mighty and powerful in all things, creator of the universe. You came to save us of our defilement. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for your sacrifice, your willingness to go to the cross for us. You're a mighty God that's worth celebrating and remembering. In Jesus' name, amen.
In Corinthians, Paul tells us, um, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that you, Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we have given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after the supper. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Father, thank you for victory in your son Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? <clears throat> 